0: Good to see you guys again. My one. Hello. Yeah, there we go. It's good to see you guys again. Um, real quick, if you weren't here last week, my name's Nathan, and I serve here on the equipping team and got to walk through Psalm 51 with you guys last week, and we're going to walk through uh, Psalm 118 today, which is uh, one of my favorites. So I'm <clears throat> looking forward to this. Real quick, we have core classes that go all the way throughout the year. Um, they start in uh, early February, and they end right at the... Uh, uh, beginning of the holidays and they run consecutively so uh, we just finished cover to cover our core class and our next one coming up that starts next Thursday is the life of Christ this is my uh, I keep saying my favorite I have a lot of favorite things but this is my favorite core class um, that, that we do just because we take a we kind of zoom in on Jesus and camp out on his on his life uh, for about six weeks so I would encourage you guys to check that out if if you have some margin uh, in your schedule, which probably a lot of you don't. (laughs) But um, either way, (laughs) you should come to this. Um, But uh, yeah, I wanted to announce that to you guys and and encourage you to check that out. So we're going to be in Psalm 118 this morning. And uh, just like we did last week, I'm going to walk through a little bit of background and context to try to understand, um, hey, what? because this psalm is really rich. It shows up uh, in quite a few places uh, in Scripture, obviously in Psalm 118, but then also the the New Testament, Jesus uses it quite a bit. So we'll we'll look at that this morning as well. Um, but Psalm 118 really uh, it it shows up as as part of uh, a series of Psalms called the Egyptian Hallel's, and and a Hallel is just a Hebrew word that means uh, to sing or we praise is another way to. Uh, to say that you, you might recognize that. I'm gonna give you a little Hebrew lesson real quick. So, Halel, and then uh, anytime you put a U at the end of a Hebrew word, it just uh, it pluralizes or it it uh, turns from a first person singular to a first person plural. So from an I to an US. And so um, we sing. So Hallelujah is we sing, and then Yah is the the Hebrew word for God, right? So Hallelujah is we sing praise to God. So for those of y'all who all grew up thinking, hallelujah, why are we singing this weird word? You know, well, that's what it is, hallelujah. We sing praise to God, it's the Hebrew word. Um, that was for free. <clears throat> but... uh the Egyptian Hallel is, is a series of psalms that would go along with the Passover liturgy when the, when the Jews would get together and observe the feast of Passover. And so the, uh, the, that series of six psalms was, was commemorating the Exodus, the fact that, that Yahweh came and rescued his people out of slavery. He delivered them um, from the yoke of slavery in Egypt and pushed them out to the promised land. And so um, it's it, still to this day when, people, when the Jews observe Passover, they are they seeing this uh, Psalm 118 in conjunction with the Passover. So it's this prayer of thanksgiving for uh, deliverance. Then during the um, during the the Israeli monarchy, or uh, Saul, David, Solomon, and then the line of kings all the way up to the exile, um, this became a, something that was that was celebrated. Psalm 118 was sung in conjunction with deliverance from their enemies. So. Um, The king would go out to battle, and then uh, when he would win and be victorious and come back into Jerusalem, they would recite Psalm 118 as he was moving kind of a processional through the city into the temple to give thanks to God for for basically uh, giving them victory, military victory. And and that's where Psalm 118 showed up during the monarchy. And then, if you know much about uh, Israel's history, especially in the Old Testament, so the, the line of kings split between Israel and Judah, and then Israel ceased to exist because the Assyrians came and wiped them out. And then uh, Judah ceased to exist because the Babylonians came and wiped them out. And so with, the Jews went into exile and then, and then returned. And during that, that exilic and post-exilic time, uh, Psalm 118, the meaning of it for the Jews kind of shifted and changed from a, uh, a prayer of thanksgiving to, to God for deliverance from their enemies to a, a prayer of uh, supplication. Um, the, it, it went from thank you for delivering us uh, from our enemies to Lord please deliver us from our enemies. And so during this post-exilic time that deliverance, um, that, that, that prayer of deliverance and, and thanksgiving to God for what he would do turned from their enemies uh, that they had defeated to their enemies that they had not yet defeated or foreign oppressors that, that existed in the land. So that's a little bit of background um, of Psalm 118. Let's go ahead and read the text and, and walk through it and then we'll, we'll, pull some, uh, we'll pull some truths out of this. Psalm 118, verses 1 to 4, you have this call of thank, uh kind of a call out to give thanks to God. So give thanks to God, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, which are the priests. His love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. And then it moves into this testimony time of more than likely the king would have recited this during this processional. But the king the king says, "In my anguish I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free." The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They swarmed around me like bees, but they died they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Again, looking at the, the, the context of that, like he, the Lord has delivered him from his enemies that surrounded him. The Lord has cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed back. I was about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And then it moves into this processional where they would have moved into the city and then into the temple in order to offer sacrifices and give thanks to God. Verse 19, Open for me the gates of righteousness, I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give thanks to you because you've answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, I'm gonna pause here for a second because I need to unpack this a little bit. So, um, the way that the Jewish king would have seen the, the stone that the builders have rejected, he, he's viewing the builders in, in, the, in the sense of like uh, world powers that were shaping what was going on in the world. And so when he thinks about the builders, he's thinking about those nations that are, that are mightier than he is and is basically saying, hey, um, the, the, the nations looked at Israel and scorned us because we were small, we were weak, we were, you know, pitiful, <laughs> right? And what he's doing is re- he's reversing that and saying, and yet... The small little nation that all the other nations scorned has, has def- not only defeated them, but beca- has become the most important stone in the whole structure, right? That, that would have been the way that the king would have, would have thought about that um, at that time. Now, Jesus takes that and redeems it. We're going to talk about that in a second, but um, just a little commentary on that. So verse 23, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, Again, as the king is coming into the temple, that would have been a a cry that the people would have made, um, thanking God for the salvation, the military salvation that had had come through the king and his might as he comes into the temple to offer sacrifices to God. Um, From the house of the Lord, we bless you. This is, this is, the Lord is our God, and he has made his light shine upon us. Um, with bows in hand, um, which are like uh, basically uh, branches, fruit, fruit would have been attached to these things. Um, it was uh, associated with uh, victory, prosperity um, for them. It says, with bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Um, and then it ends with this Thanksgiving renewed Um, uh, again, a call back to praise. You are my God, I will give you thanks. You're my God, I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. That's Psalm 118. So, how does this show up? Um, Because, obviously, it's cool to read that in the Old Testament. No, yeah, cool, it's cool to understand the Jewish history behind that and what they would have done. But this shows up a couple of times in the Gospels, and this is really important for us. Um, Because... There's one passage, and if you read and prepared for this, I'm basically just going to rehash that and give a little bit more color commentary to it. But this is my, this is this is one of the coolest stories um, in the Gospels. It's in John chapter seven, verses 37 through 39. And it it basically says that on the last and the greatest day of the feast. So this Egyptian Hillel was was, uh, read during Passover time, but then it was also celebrated during the Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of the harvest. And so they would have gathered all their crops in, and then then on the last and greatest day of the feast, they did this water liturgy where they went down into the, the Pool of Siloam, which was in the southern part of the city, and they dipped, uh, the high priest would dip this cup into the ceremonial uh, pool, and then the whole procession would follow him back up into the temple, and the whole time they're carrying uh, palm branches, fruit, uh, uh, citrons, uh, various things for them to, to say, hey, Lord, deliver us, provide for us um, through the crops for next year. And in order to do that, um, we need rain, <laughs> right? This is an agrarian society. They exist by um, the, the crop that they uh, bring in every year. And so that's what they're praying for. They're, they're saying, Lord, um, bring us rain. So there's this thanksgiving meaning uh, for deliverance from uh, uh, the, the Egyptians through the Exodus. Then there's this thanksgiving meaning element of it that's deliverance from their enemies, and then there's also this prayer, this supplication of God deliver us um, by putting food in our stomachs, right? Give us a crop. So the, the high priest would take this, this cup and bring it up into the temple, and on the last and greatest day of the feast, he did this, and the whole procession, you got a picture in your mind, because the Temple Mount, if you've ever been there before, it's a fairly large, you know, plot of land there, and I'm talking about thousands of people, um, as, as one of the major Jewish feasts, thousands of people would have descended on Jerusalem, and they would have been walking in procession with the high priest who had this cup of water. And he's taking it up, like, like it says in, in uh, verse 27, with bows in hand, join us in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. They would have been singing this psalm as the high priest is going up and, and uh, is going to offer this uh, water libation, this water sacrifice onto the altar as a prayer for Yahweh, give us rain. Deliver us through, through water so that we can produce a crop and exist for another year, right? Well, um, in the fall, early October of AD 32, while, uh, while Tiberius was the emperor and uh, Pilate was the prefect um, in Jerusalem, and uh, Caiaphas was the high priest, right? Um, this is happening. And, and the, the high priest goes, takes that, everybody's singing the, the Hallel, the Hallelujah, the Hosanna, of uh, verse 25, save us. Literally, Hosanna just means save us now. Grant us success. Um, save us. They would have been crying out, save us, save us, save us as this, prof- as this procession is coming up. And, and the high priest would have lifted up the water libation and prayed a certain prayer of salvation through rain. God, give us rain for this next year. And then he would have poured out that water libation at the base of the horn of the altar in, in, in uh, the symbolism of God, send us rain. Well, the only time, right, that anybody really could have heard the high priest pray, pray that was, was when he lifted that cup up and there was a hush that came over the crowd so that everybody was leaning in and listening. Because it's not like they have microphones back in the day, right? So everybody's leaning in, thousands of people are leaning in and listening to the high priest pray this prayer of rain for God to deliver them through through their their crops. And he lifts that up and starts to pray this prayer, and some Galilean rabbi at that moment stands up over the crowd, and, and literally at the most quiet moment of this entire procession, he stands up and says, Is anybody thirsty? If anybody's thirsty, let him come to me because the one who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow streams of living water. That's crazy, right? If that doesn't still send a chill down your back, I don't know what will, <laughs> All right? Here is this guy at the, at the moment, at the apex of this celebration of God. Deliver us, deliver us. He stands up and goes, I am the deliverer. That is crazy. Right? No wonder right after this they were plotting to kill him. In fact, the high priest said, hey, um, we need to go take care of him. So they, they actually tried to go arrest him in that moment, and the crowd would not let the, the temple guards do that. They said, no, 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 not today. Um, we're trying to figure out who this guy is, right? this Jesus of Nazareth. Crazy. Then in the spring, so that was early October that that happened. In the spring um, the late March, early April of eighty thirty three, um, the the uh, Jesus is interacting with uh, the the religious leaders and and uh, is is teaching in the temple. He would teach in the temple during the Passion Week, and then we go back to Bethany and spend the night. But he was teaching in the temple, and and uh, as he's doing this, he uh, he looks at the religious leaders. I think with um, probably some uh, uh, probably some disgust. Because of the fact that they they just totally miss it, right? Um, But also, probably with a lot of empathy. Um, where he's just like, hey, you guys, y'all, you, you all you guys are the ones that are, are shaping the nation right now, and I'm telling you, that same prayer that y'all have been praying about world power shaping, um, and then Israel has become the, the, the cornerstone, I'm telling you that you guys are the world builders that are shaping Israel, and, and the stone that the builders rejected, you're rejecting me. And I'm telling you, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this is marvelous in his eyes. The, the crowd is crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The same crowd that's ushering Jesus into um, the, the city at that time um, is rejecting him. The, the leaders are rejecting him. The stone that, that, that the builders rejected has, has become the chief cornerstone. Um, and... And then on, on Friday, that we're about to celebrate in a few weeks, um, on that Friday, uh, Jesus is executed for sedition, um, and then on Sunday, he is alive. Right. So I want to talk, as we close up our time here, <clears throat> I want to talk about expectation and reality, because everybody had, a, everybody had a, an expectation about uh, how God would deliver them um, and rightly so. I mean, after a while, you, you sing this, you, you defeat your enemies, you sing this psalm. You defeat your enemies, you sing this psalm. You pray for rain, it rains. You sing this psalm. Um, you, you, uh, you, you celebrate, you give thanks to God for, for how he's delivered you. But the, the type of deliverance that the first century was looking for in a Jewish Messiah was not the type that actually came. There was a difference between the expectation and the reality. So what they were looking for, they were looking for physical security, so, when, uh, when, when the messianic expectation for who the Messiah would be in the first century was, hey, you need to provide for us what David was providing for us back in the day, son of David, which means you need to expand our borders, you need to provide uh, physical security f- uh, for us from our physical enemies, and, and that was the expectation of what the Messiah would be. He would provide Um, physical security. Also, as we've talked about quite a bit, um, provision through rain, right? They were expecting for God to continue to provide for them by continuing to send rain so that they could harvest their crops and feed their children, right? Um, The expectation was provide for us, um, give us food. The expectation, another messianic expectation is that the Messiah would rule through power, Right? There would be a messianic rule through power. Um, save us from our enemies, which is what Psalm 118 had become for uh, the, the nation of Israel because of Roman oppression, because of Syrian oppression, because of Egyptian oppression. Like all these people were, were uh, occupying Israel, and Israel is crying out, Lord, free us from our oppressor. That's what we want. We're praying for provision in that form. Come and rescue us from our enemies. And frankly, too, there was a, this obvious expectation that I think probably most of us have, um, even if we don't say it, we kind of just expect it. Is, is that people stay dead, right? Dead people stay dead. That's kind of like uh, this obvious thing, right? And yet, when Jesus shows up and becomes the when Jesus shows up and becomes the fulfillment of the the expectation. Of, of what people are, are, are expecting Yahweh to provide for them, he shows up and he says, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to provide physical security necessarily um, for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go much deeper than that. I'm going to provide for you eternal security so that even if you physically die, um, I will raise you from the dead. There, there's, this, there's this point where physical security in some way becomes a non-issue. Because even if you kill me, God will raise me from the dead. Like it, the, Jesus said that those who believe in me, um, even if he dies, he'll still live. And, and so that's the type of reality that, that shows up in, in, in Christ. Secondly, Jesus is like, hey, I'm, I'm not just going to give you rain. I'm going to give you water, like we talked about in John 7. I'm going to give you water that springs up inside of you to eternal life. That's why he says the one who comes and drink, he'll never thirst again. You don't need, you, once you drink my water, you don't need water anymore. Thirdly, um, there's, this, there's this messianic expectation of ruling through power, and yet Jesus comes as the Messiah, and he rules through love. This is a totally, totally, this is a massive paradigm shift that's going on. And then lastly, um, the expectation of people staying dead. Look, this is, you know, one of the greatest evidences, I think, for the resurrection, is that this that that this came out of this people group who um, were staunchly monotheistic. That, that there is only one God, and and you, there there was no conception of, of any kind of trinitarian uh, belief in in Judaism. It was Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and and Yahweh is God, the Father, and yet out of that people group comes this belief that um, Yahweh is not just God the Father, he is also God the Son. Out of the the one people group in the whole earth that is least likely to make that type of mistake comes this belief where people are worshiping God the Father and also worshiping God the Son. Where does that come from? Well, I think the most natural explanation is something happened that would be such a massive seismic shift in people's belief, and the most, the most natural explanation for that is that there was a man who claimed these things about himself, died for sedition, um, probably in early April of AD and three days later, he was no longer dead. And now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, not only lives, but lives in you. That's crazy <laughs> and, and, and worthy of our praise. So, so here's the principle in tying this up. Sometimes God's provision shows up in ways that you would not expect. And secondly, it always, it always goes deeper than you will ever know. You pray for provision and you thank God for provision and he will provide for you. He may not provide for you in your time or in the way that you think he should, but he will provide for you. And secondly, that provision is always gonna go way deeper than you'd ever think it would. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis. He says this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's he's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew those jobs needed doing, so, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably, and it doesn't even make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. Right? That's what he's doing in your life. And so the provision that God uh, brings for you will happen in your life. The work that he began in you, he will complete it. You cannot stop him, right? But that provision and that work that he's doing in you is gonna go way deeper than you ever think it would, right? And it's gonna hurt because what he's doing is he's coming into your natural self and he's killing it. And frankly, guys, I think for us, who would, we would settle. We're far too easily pleased we would, settle for, we would settle for a decent little cottage, um, but I promise you, the God who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, um, will settle for nothing less than a palace that he can come and live in, and that's what he's doing in your life. So give thanks to the Lord, because he is good, and his love endures forever. And I think we can all say, based on the sacrifice and love of Jesus Christ. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you are doing something far greater in our lives than any of us um, would ever guess and any of us, frankly, would ever even want. (laughs) And yet, as you're transforming us, um, you are cultivating in us. You're opening our eyes. You're pulling the the veil back from our eyes, and you're allowing us to see the beauty of um, what you're making us into. And so we do say with one voice, with one heart, um, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.